past penetrating and perfect truth is seldom met with, even in a hundred thousand myriad kalpas. Now we can see and hear it. We can remember and accept it. I vow to make the Buddha's truth one with myself. Homage to the Buddha, homage to the Dharma, homage to the Sangha. So good morning to everyone here. It's good to see you all. Today we celebrated the festival of great master Kazan, who was one of the great ancestors of our Soto Zen or serene reflection meditation tradition. And we joyfully celebrate the fact that he taught us all that he did. I'm happy to say that spring has finally shown itself, however briefly. It's a little late and maybe a little temporary, but I'll take it. And I wanted to ask if any of you have ever experienced spring fever. Um, For me, that can take the form of sort of a fuzzy mental state and a dreaminess, um, languid, listless, dreamy. And that leads right into what our topic for today is going to be. Buddhists name five hindrances that can get in the way of our practice. And they are sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and doubt. The first, sensual desire, is linked with greed. The second, ill will, is linked with anger or aversion. And the three final ones belong in the category of delusion. Today's talk isn't likely to have you falling out of your seats with excitement, as it will focus on sloth and torpor, (laughs) sometimes called drowsiness, lethargy, or laziness. But I like that classical phrase from scripture, sloth and torpor. Doesn't the sound of those words call up a vivid sense of their meaning? Sloth means a disinclination to action or labor, or more to the point for us, spiritual apathy and inactivity. Oh, I don't think I'll sit this morning. It's a nice day. I'd rather go for a walk. So, it comes from a Middle English word meaning slow. Sloth does. And it implies a lack of willingness to respond promptly when a prompt response is needed. Or even to act at all. Torpor is sometimes used to describe the languid state brought on by extreme heat. Not a problem we've had here lately. It also means apathy, dullness, a state of mental and motor inactivity, extreme sluggishness or stagnation of function, lethargy, physical or mental inertia. Torpor implies a state of suspended animation, but may suggest merely extreme sluggishness. And listen again to these words, apathy, inactivity, dullness, sluggishness, stagnation, inertia. 
Just listening to them can make us feel sleepy, which is not what I intend to do here. <laughs> Long ago, I had a co-worker who would sometimes say, my get up and go got up and went, to indicate that she was feeling tired or lazy. And I like that phrase and still think of it at times. It describes the condition we're talking about perfectly well. Some of you were here last Sunday when we had a 40-minute period of meditation with the congregation in this hall. That morning, I was feeling run down, weak, and limp. My get-up-and-go had got up and went. I wasn't ill. I had slept well the previous night. I hadn't been overexerting myself at physical labor, and those are some of the usual reasons for tiredness. But I wanted nothing more than to sit in my chair and drift. Just imagining the energy required to walk to the Buddha Hall, put on my kesa, and find a seat, much less sit upright in meditation for 40 minutes, just imagining it, seemed too much to handle. And yet, it was what needed to be done at that time. So, I made the choice to take it one step at a time. I knew I could take that one first step. Start walking towards the Buddha Hall and see if I got that far. Put my kesa on. And I knew that if I didn't get that far, somebody would pick me up. So, start walking. Put my kesa on find a seat, take that first step, then the next, and the next, and going on. So, having found the seat, I thought, so far, so good. The bell rang for meditation, and I was able to stay awake for about five minutes. No matter how hard I tried, staying awake just wasn't happening, and I dozed off and on. About five minutes before the end of the period, I awoke suddenly and vowed to stay awake for those five minutes until the period ended. And I was able to do that by silently reciting part of the scripture of great wisdom to kind of jumpstart things again. Sloth and torpor have been with me throughout this lifetime, and they're old friends of mine. I say friends because the suffering resulting from these hindrances can actually help motivate us in our practice. Doing a bit of research, I came across a scripture in the Pali Canon where the Buddha notices that one of his chief disciples, Maha Moggallana, is nodding off. The Buddha asks him, are you sleepy? And Moggallana replies, yes, I am. The Buddha then goes on to offer eight suggested remedies for his drowsiness. And typical of the Pali Canon, the sec- this section features some repetition. The, Bud- the Buddha begins by saying, advising Moggallana, at whatever thought torpor has befallen you, not to give it attention. Then it is possible that by so doing, torpor will disappear. So, we can watch our minds and discern the moment the torpor has begun and try letting go of that thought rather than dwelling on it.
Suggestion number two. But if by so doing the torpor does not disappear, you should think and reflect within your mind about the Dhamma and you should mentally review it. Then it is possible that by so doing torpor will disappear. But if by so doing it does not disappear, you should learn by heart the Dhamma in its fullness. Then it is possible that by so doing, torpor will disappear. I'd say that a bit of familiar scripture can jumpstart your alert mind. And then you can return to your meditation. Suggestion number four. But if by so doing it does not disappear, you should shake your ears and rub your limbs with the palm of your hand. Of course, this is not for when you're sitting in the hall with others. <laughs> then, it is possible that by so doing, torpor will disappear. But, if by so doing it does not disappear, you should get up from your seat and after washing your eyes with water, look around in all directions and look upwards. Then, it is possible that by so doing, torpor will disappear. Splashing a bit of cool water on the face and looking upwards at the ceiling have been two of the most helpful remedies for me with sleepiness. Of course, again, if you're sitting with others, you don't want to disturb them by getting up and going to the bathroom and splashing your face with cold water, but you can always do that before the meditation period begins. And looking upwards is very quiet and simple. You can just do this. Look up at the ceiling. So, number six. But if by so doing it does not disappear, you should firmly establish the inner perception of light. Thus, with a mind clear and unobstructed, you should develop a consciousness which is full of brightness then it is possible that by so doing, torpor will disappear. And I've seen this stated as visualizing a bright light. Again, this could jumpstart your practice, but not replace your regular meditation. Number seven. If all the others have failed to rouse you, then consciousness of what is before and behind Walk up and down with your senses turned inwards, with your mind not going outwards. Then it is possible that by so doing, torpor will disappear. And we always have walking meditation. Whenever we have two consecutive periods of seated meditation, we have a period of walking meditation between them. For this very reason, it gets the body and the mind moving. And finally, number eight. But if by so doing, it does not disappear, and here's the Buddha's great compassion, you may lie down on your right side, mindful, clearly conscious, keeping in mind the thought of rising. Having awakened again, you should quickly rise, thinking, I won't indulge in the enjoyment of lying down and reclining in the enjoyment of sleep. 
It's not the lying down and resting that's the problem. He says, I will not indulge in the enjoy- enjoyment of those things. And that comes from the, and pardon my pronunciation, Anguttara Nikaya. Now, not all these will work when sitting with a group. And not all of them will work for every person every time. But I have found a couple of them to be especially helpful. The splash of cold water on the face. Looking upwards or kind of moving the eyes from side to side, up and down. Walking or other exercise. Recalling a piece of dharma or scripture that I've memorized. The Buddha gives Mogulana specific postural instructions for lying down to rest on the right side with one foot atop the other in the lion's pose. Posture is important. Our practice is a practice of body and mind. And straightening my posture helps me to relieve the feeling of drowsiness, both during seated meditation and in daily life activity. I found another scriptural reference to the hindrances, also from the Anguttara Nikaya of the Pali Canon, and this deals with feeding and starving the five hindrances. With regard to sloth and torpor, what feeds sloth and torpor are boredom, weariness, yawning, drowsiness after a meal, and sluggishness of awareness. And the Buddha advises us not to foster inappropriate attention to those things. And I'd say at this point in my training that the inappropriate attention can mean indulging them, dwelling on them. Boredom arises and you think, oh, I'm so bored. When is the bell going to ring (laughs) from sitting in meditation? The Buddha mentions drowsiness after a meal, and that's why our meditation periods are scheduled before rather than after meals. Well, the evening one is after a meal, but it's sufficient time after the meal for digestion to be complete. So, when I notice sluggishness of awareness, that is what I might describe as a blank state, I make a point to notice some of the sights and sounds around me. The sound of the freeway, a bird singing, or the wind chimes outside, or a point on the floor. Or I straighten my posture. And the Buddha also uh, describes here ways to starve sloth and torpor. And he says that those are the potential for effort, the potential for exertion, the potential for striving, Those potentials are always there, and we can tap into them. To foster appropriate attention to these. And at this time in my training, I take appropriate attention to mean willingness to make an effort, willingness to take the trouble. I want to mention briefly one of the six paramitas, which are useful practices, both in formal meditation and in daily life. The fourth of these is called virya paramita, which can be translated as effort, energy, diligence, perseverance, zeal, or enthusiasm, vigor. One might suppose that 
the practice of virya paramita depends upon having a strong energetic feeling. However, my experience proves that this isn't true. The word perseverance in this case is helpful to me. We can always take the first step and never give up. Taking the first step. I know for myself that sometimes I can be feeling all in, my get up and go, got up and went, and out of nowhere can come the energy to keep going. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we need to recall the Buddha's compassionate instruction, if nothing else helps, if nothing else helps, maybe you just need to rest, keeping to the middle way. And if that sounds difficult, it is. I mean, it can be, and it takes practice. You learn by experience. You go too far and you collapse, you learn not to go that far next time. You don't go quite far enough and you feel kind of sluggish, you learn. Next time, maybe you push it a little harder. In another recent talk, I mentioned the title of our old cookbook, which has been inspiring me lately. It was, it's called Cooking with a Gentle Heart. And whether it's cooking, answering the phone, or cleaning the litter box, we can aspire to doing it with a gentle heart. Gentle doesn't imply weakness. I've heard reference to large, strong humans or other animals as gentle giants when their behavior is peaceful and even-tempered. And when ill or exhausted, We can lie down and rest with a bright and willing mind, as the Buddha describes in his instruction. I found a few more recommendations for dealing with sloth and torpor from the venerable Tubten Chogren, who is a teacher and abbess in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And they'll sound familiar. She says, one is to open your eyes. And that's one of the important reasons that we meditate in our tradition with our eyes open. When drowsy, lift the eyebrows and the skin of the forehead. Look up, and you can look up spiritually as well as physically. Make sure your head isn't drooping. Make sure your back is straight and your head is level. Splash your face with some cold water. And she says, take off the two dozen blankets you have covering you. (laughs) If you're a little bit cold, you'll stay awake better. (laughs) And it's true. If you are a little bit cooler than you're used to being, it will help you to stay awake. This is a challenge for me, and I'm working on this one. Trying to stay a little bit cooler and not keep myself too covered up. Um, Venerable Tubten Chodron mentions some breathing practices that are specific to the Tibetan tradition. Um, Let me say that I find it helpful when drowsy to take a couple of the backward-flowing breaths that I learned to take at the beginning of a meditation period. That is, imagining the energy of the breath beginning at the base of the spine and moving upwards on the inhalation flowing over the top of the head and down again on the exhalation to where it began. And we do this a couple of times at the beginning of a meditation period and then just breathe naturally. You can do this 
unobtrusively in whatever circumstances you find yourself, in line at the supermarket or whatever. Now, since today is the festival of Great Master Kazan, I'd like to read a bit from his instructions on how to do pure meditation. Great Master Kazan says, Whilst sitting, if you begin to fall asleep, you should always sway your body or open your eyes wide. Also, focus your mind on the space between your eyebrows. If you are still not fully awake, use your hands to wipe your eyes or rub your body. If you are still not fully awake, rise from your sitting place and walk about calmly, making sure to do it at a normal pace. When you have taken about a hundred paces, you will most likely have come out of your sleepiness. Although you are walking, do it as though you were not walking. Be calm and tranquil and do not thrash your body about. If after walking in this way, you are still not fully awake, either rinse your eyes and douse your head with cold water or recite, say, the introduction to the Bodhisattva precepts. In other words, a short bit of scripture. Apply these various skillful means so that you do not let yourself fall off into sleep. And where I sit in the, in the meditation hall, fall off into sleep is a very likely possibility because if where I sit, I face forward on the edge of a raised platform. And if I fall too deeply asleep, there's always the possibility that I will actually fall off the platform. So I try very hard to not do that. Um, You should observe that the matter of birth and death is a great one, and that impermanence is swift indeed. What do you do about drowsiness when your eye that seeks the way is not yet bright? If periods of drowsiness persist, you should make a vow, saying, Because my karmic habits are already heavy, I am now shrouded in sleep. When will I awaken from my dark and confused wandering in the mind? I pray that the Buddhas and ancestors will confer their great compassion on me and remove my dark and heavy suffering. So you can ask for help from the Buddhas and ancestors. When sloth and torpor arise, we can always take that next step with a gentle heart, not beating ourselves up or lamenting our seeming lack of energy, but recalling that which brings us to do this practice, going, going, going on beyond, beyond our self-imposed limitations. And I'll close by relating an anecdote that someone told me recently. A monk had been caring for someone who was very ill and disabled in many ways. And this had gone on for a long time. The caregiving monk told a senior, I've reached my limit. 
The senior's reply was, there are no limits. This was, of course, the answer to a spiritual question. And there are sometimes limits. For example, I cannot hit a home run off major league pitching. And I'd be foolish to think I could. So there are practical limits sometimes. At the level of conventional reality, there are limits. In spiritual practice, there are no limits. And always going on beyond. Always becoming Buddha. Hail, hail, hail. Thank you all for being here. And I hope the suggestions I have offered from the Buddha and others will be helpful. And let's enjoy this last nice spring day before the rain and snow come back. (laughs) Yes. <laughs>